Welcome to Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth, a show about markets, investing, and financial planning. Join us as we cover current events that are in the news and answer top of mind questions from our listeners. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. This audio may contain statements that may be deemed as forward-looking. Any such statements are not guarantees of future performance and actual results may differ from those projected. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, tax, or other professional services. Welcome everyone to episode 21 of Top of Mind with Concilio Wealth. On today's episode, we are going to talk about Silicon Valley Bank selling to First Citizens Bank, Signature Bank selling to Flagstar, as well as a whole bunch of updates on consumers. Consumer behavior has been really interesting over this last, really, two months. Um, A couple of key points. Consumers have been funding money market accounts and taking from bank deposits. We're going to kind of break that down and discuss why that's maybe problematic long-term to the banking system. Um, We have some interesting facts around what consumers think mortgages will go to in the next one and three years in terms of interest rates. uh, Spoiler alert on that, it's over 8%. I hope that's wrong, but that's what consumers think in a survey. And uh, also we'll wrap up with how consumer confidence right now in the stock market is near an all-time low and why that actually contrasts with forward-looking, very good stock market returns. How how's it going today? Pretty good. Can't complain. Like you know, it. we we had a rally. It's uh, April fifth. Markets closed to two thirty uh, Pacific, and we've had what's well, Wednesday. So we've had a couple down days to start the week. Right after the initial rally post SVB, maybe the market's coming to its senses to. You know, pricing and some of the risks that we know about, mm-hmm. but doesn't it's it's not a full on panic sell by any stretch. But you know, we're, we're experiencing a little bit of downward pressure on markets. It's been actually a really interesting start to the year when we look at what we call a style box, which breaks down big companies, medium, small companies, and then value blend and growth. Um, and year to date the value sector and, and value traditionally would be undervalued companies or, or companies that pay a dividend might be what you're thinking of there. Um, last year, those companies did really well. This year, the total return uh, is 1% through the first quarter on large value versus large growth, almost 14.5%. So there's a huge discrepancy between those areas of the market uh, just here in the last quarter. Yeah, well, if you were looking at a calendar return for 2022, you probably would have put your money in value companies. Mm -hmm. And you probably did not allocate towards growth companies. I'm just making a case for diversification. You got to buy some of the stuff that's out of favor because sometimes it unexpectedly rebounds. Because the NASDAQ's up what percent this year? Uh, 20 yeah. So it's in a, an official bull market, which I don't know, given all the information that we have is a little odd, but anyone who's not invested in the NASDAQ, at least in large cap growth, has missed a bull market, which is really odd. Yeah, pretty interesting, right? Bull markets <laughs> happen fast. Bull markets happen in the face investor, of right? bad times. Yeah. 
Let's pivot into our agenda here. So let's talk about Silicon Valley Bank selling to First Citizens Bank. And the interesting thing is that First Citizens got a $16.5 billion discount on this purchase. So how, if you could break down what happened with this transaction and how did those two banks effectively get married? Well, um, once Silicon Valley Bank was put on under administration or whatever FDIC calls it when they take over. <laughs> Administrative um, leave. I, mean, yeah. I think in Europe they call it administration. Hmm. Um, they they basically freeze all the the liabilities. I think that's the big thing that's that's being diced up here. Um, if we're talking about assets, we're we're talking loans predominantly to Silicon Valley companies, right? Whether they survive or not. So the credit credit underlying the assets might be a little iffy. I don't know. I don't know if uh, uh, Silicon Valley's credit standards were as good as their risk management standards, but mm-hmm. given, given their history, that's, that's essentially what, what you're buying of value, right? Cause you're buying outstanding loans that these companies need to pay back at an mm-hmm. interest rate and most likely a higher interest rate. Cause they don't have a lot of history as co- companies, which is fine. The, 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 there, there should be a banking level that covers new businesses, right? That's how the American economy really chugs along as the small and medium businesses that are always getting created. But uh, yeah, once they went under administration, um, first citizens, I guess, bid. I guess that their highest bidder, which was still well below the the last market value of Silicon Valley, meaning they got a steep, steep discount to buy this this troubled bank. But what you're buying, on top of the assets I explained, was the assumption of liabilities, right? You have these depositors that might still withdraw at a high rate. I don't know what deal they they had with the FDIC to make sure that there's not a run on first citizens because this is a tight-knit community that, that runs to the exit or the entryway all at the same time, right? They're, they're very herd herd-based group. And that's essentially what, when you're buying any bank, right? You're, you're, you're liable to the depositors. If there's a hundred billion dollars in there, you got to be ready in worst case scenarios for a hundred billion dollars to get withdrawn. Mm-hmm. Like who has that kind of capital? I don't, I don't know any regional bank that can withstand that. Um, even large banks, and that's that's why we have this definition of too big to fail, right? Because FDIC could, in no way, handle a Bank of America run, right, or a J.P. Morgan run, which probably wouldn't happen. But I guess, I guess we're in the age of seeing things happen where we think they would never happen. I think what's interesting about this is that the deal, similar to what happened in 2008, the bank was essentially split up and the purchaser could buy what they wanted. And so this is, you know, first citizens bought $72 billion in loans, discount of 16 and a half billion. And then they were able to have a a pledge to share any losses with the FDIC. That's common just to sort of protect the buyer from the unknown on if the the run on the bank or the bad debts continue. I think that makes sense because it needs to be off of the the FDIC's balance sheet. Yeah. Um, but then also this this article here that that I have in front of me says First Citizens also did not take an additional ninety billion dollars in securities from Silicon Valley Bank 
which now the FDIC will have to sell on its own. Yeah, and those securities are technically assets. They're probably a mix of bonds or right. or mortgage-backed securities or asset-backed securities um, or even loans, right? Uh, senior loans, things like that, that a typical bank would make. It's pretty interesting because I know that they, they opened up a credit facility with the FDIC. Um, and so, you know, they, they First Citizens has access to capital. And I wonder if they basically said, hey, all these loans that are under, or not the loans, all these bonds that are underwater on Silicon Valley's balance sheet, FDIC keep those because you can just simply hold them to maturity and then yeah. you won't lose money. And we're going to take this credit facility and instead buy loan buy bonds at today's values, which are significantly higher, um, in order to to balance out our own balance sheet. I don't know the answer to that, but I, I I have a feeling that's probably what they would have done. I think that would make sense if I yeah. were first citizens. But again, you're buying a relatively toxic asset base, right? Like the the Silicon Valley Bank is. I don't I don't know how many bidders there were ultimately, but it doesn't sound like a lot. Especially when the, the ending sale price was for part of the company, part of the assets, for what a tenth of its value. You think it was toxic? <laughs> Silicon Valley? Yeah. As a whole? Uh, yeah. Maybe. I think reputationally, yeah, yeah. I think uh, uh, when you have a deposit base that's so fickle, and mm. again, I'm, I'm throwing all tech bros in one pool, but they they were really quick to try to run to the exits. And if I were any bank, I would, that would be one of my red flags. Um, if I were going to bid on a potential takeover of Silicon Valley, right? I think we'll have to see, right? <clears throat> Next couple of years, we'll see, does the run continue? Does it stop now? We just don't know. We won't have data for a while. Yeah. Well, the, the data we are seeing is from money markets, right? So there's a combination of growing money markets and shrinking banking deposits. Mm -hmm. Were you done with that first topic? I, I, I guess I sagged into that money market topic. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. Well, the, the money market funds have, have seen massive increases, right? Um, in middle of March, that, that first week alone, that Silicon Valley week, $120 billion in deposits went into money markets and the biggest banks, the biggest 25 banks, gained $67 billion. Mm -hmm. So Chris and I talked about the bleeding of the regional banks because, yeah, they're, they're too small to to have an outsized withdrawal rate. And depositors, wanting to get ahead of it, I guess, have taken their money out and moved it to the too-big-to-fail banks or moved it to the money markets. And... That is concerning because we mentioned how much commercial business, construction business, small business business, small uh, medium business business that regional banks operate in, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm JP Morgan, am I talking to a small business? Not really, not unless they have what a, a certain multi-million dollar enterprise. Right. They're, they're not servicing the small business or even the commercial uh, real estate business or the construction business. They're not in that business to do business with those people. And I use business a lot, but it's just a lot of areas of the U.S. economy that are not going to be served if this continues. 
what's interesting about this chart is that it, it shows retail assets and institutional assets and the retail assets is really just climbing at a very slow clip over time and doesn't really change uh, other than just, again, the small, small kind of inflation rate. Institutional assets have remained pretty stable with the exception of the last two readings and they've spiked. Yeah. And so really this is, is centered around institutional assets, which of course is the big money moving. Um, but that's where this money's flowing from these smaller banks into the bigger banks, which is problematic. Yeah. And it's something that we can't keep happening. And I think that's why it's important for regulators, I guess, uh, the U S government, uh, to, to explicitly provide a big backstop. Because we all know the backstop's there for big banks. We don't know if there's the backstop for regional banks. Right, right. Right, and all these people, uh, we have another article where 80% of the deposits of SBB Bank were actually planned to vacate or be yeah. withdrawn from the bank and, until that, that administration date hit and the assets were frozen. So if they weren't frozen, uh, that $42 billion run would have been uh, – $142 billion. So $100 billion was, was, I guess, stemmed or Pen Pending triaged? leaving, I think. I yeah. think it was unanswered wires. I mean, you heard about yeah. people saying, I mean, yeah, I logged in and I got a wire, but it hasn't been honored. I, I think I think there's $100 billion in wires that didn't get honored. That is crazy. Yeah. And again, media probably doesn't really have a photo op for this because you know if this was the great depression you would see a line down the right. block right and here you just log into your your phone app or if you're a business your your uh your quickbooks or whatever accounting tool you use and get that money out if you can right and if you were in their shoes right chris if it was our business or your per even your personal account you would drop everything right and go Go try to get money out as quickly as you can and move it to what you think is a safer place. No question. Yeah. And a lot of it went to money markets. So I guess I'll spend a little bit of time with money markets. And this is probably like okay. the skip ahead moment or go to sleep moment. But money markets are just that. They're, they're a market for money. Um, the, the Fed set up two basically money market desks for international trades. So you have a... Uh, a pension fund or a sovereign fund overseas that wants U.S. dollars, they'll they'll exchange via that. But if they want to earn interest, they'll the money market provides, you know, short term treasuries, right? I'm, I'm short term meaning like seven days at the most. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's overnight. If you if you need money fast, there's always there's always liquidity, and this is about an eight trillion dollar market on a on a maxed out day. And on a slow day, it's about $4 trillion of money flowing back and forth, right? So, so the liquidity there, liquidity there is astronomical. So I don't know if there's risk in money markets, but if you want to access money through your money markets through, let's say, your broker, it does have to funnel through a bank mm -hmm. anyway. But funneling through thousands of banks versus you know, four or five banks, I think, makes sense. But the money market is a sea of money in a market, I guess, that that allows for these exchanges to happen and or and or earn interest, right? So the, it's it's called the repo market. I, it's, it's short for repurchase agreement market. 
Repo is probably a bad name. I got to think of uh, cars being repoed. Cars getting repoed, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But the repo market is the most liquid market in the universe, right? I I can't think of a situation where there'd be a run on money markets. It just doesn't, just doesn't happen. We've had a few scares in 2019, but money flowing is, if there's like too, too imbalanced, meaning like there's too many people wanting actual cash versus people who want, you know, treasuries, the Fed steps in and provides that liquidity, hmm. right? And if I'm trading with you and I'm buying treasuries, I'm giving you cash, but you have a repurchase agreement to, to sell to get that cash back in mm-hmm. seven days or less. Mm-hmm. And it works. Hmm. And I think that's why money from regional banks is going to the money markets. And that's why they were able to pay what, in today's rates, 4% four, 4 or 5%. You have some data here that says during the week of, Mar- during the week of March 15th, small banks lost 120 billion in deposits and the 25 biggest banks gained 67 billion. So is the difference there going into money markets? Is that how extreme this is? Like half of the money is going into money markets and half is going to bank deposits or like where did that other 60 billion yep. go? Yeah, that's the problem with we're dealing with these big numbers is like where where does half the money go? Um, now I would assume a lot of it goes to money markets, but I'm assuming a lot of people actually took physical cash out. but. The, the the amount of physical cash in circulation compared to what's on paper, there's no. It's like a yeah. Yeah, it's not even a full percent. Right. So, so for for money to not land where we thought it was going to land, it's confounding. So, I don't honestly don't know where it ends up when it's a report like this. Because again, I'm not a banking expert. Right. I try to pass off as one, but it's just it's just when yeah, money gets withdrawn it has to kind of land somewhere right especially in these big pools like that i feel like it has to be that right i mean where does 60 billion dollars go it's not in people's mattresses and particularly this is mostly businesses that are taking money you can't pay payroll that way correct so it must be going into money market accounts which then shows up in a different you know thing and and that's because the fdic insurance like a number of online banks, like I think SoFi came out with this and they said they're now insured up to is either two and a half or 5 million. Cause they simply just spread it out across partner banks so that your bank account is insured over, yeah. over the two fifty limit. And I, and I think you're going to see more banks do that type of thing. Some already did, but I think you're going to see a lot more now. Yeah. Hm, like a shared liability. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the other interesting thing here is that the FDIC wanted they want big banks to shoulder more of the the blow from all of this. So some interesting numbers. I had no idea. You know, the FDIC is this. It's this insurance pool, and all banks pay an insurance premium. That insurance premium goes into this pool of funds, and then that pool of funds is accessed four times like now. It's there for for loans or for you know for money to 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 backstop banks. That's why the the FDIC was able to come out and say. None of this money is taxpayer money, which is great. And, uh, so 23 billion was used during all of this and 128 billion was the balance. And the FDIC wants the big banks to shoulder more of the blow. Uh, I guess I have two observations. 128 billion is nothing, (laughs) 
considering all the banks and everything else, that is, that just seems like a small number. Um, a $23 billion hit is a huge hit. So it's a huge yeah. hit on a small number. I don't know how this is solved. I guess I'm just posing the question for con conversation. Uh, but what do you make of all this? Well, the money market is three point, I'm trying to eyeball it, 3.3 trillion. So, so that money is obviously not in banks, but let's say banks are, again, in the trillion range, that FDIC isn't sufficient. But again, that's probably assuming a systemic bank failure, right? Where you would need all of it. I think the the point of it would be cover one or two banks because it was Silicon Valley and First Republic. But it, what if it was a third or fourth one, right? Because these dominoes fell pretty fast, especially when this particular uh, deposit base. I don't know. That $128 billion doesn't seem enough to cover at what point does the treasury step in or some other regulator step in and backstop. Right. I don't, I really don't know. Yeah. So they're proposing a special assessment, kind of like a condo special assessment to try to yeah. pull in some money to replenish the, the, the fund. Hmm. Interesting. That's kind of a continued story. That's not, not really top of news, but I think it'll be interesting to see what, what ultimately happens there. Hmm. Yep. Big banks are empowered by all these new deposits, but then FDIC is asking them to cover the literal guys, which in, in their best interest, is it, is it in their best interest to pay an outside share of FDIC insurance to make sure first republics do stand on their own two feet hmm. going forward. Right. Cause we mentioned, JP Morgan isn't giving construction loans out. That's just not their business. Mm -hmm. How, again, speaking as shareholders, I guess, I, we're not really um, shareholders of any specific banks, but how do they view it, right? Do they have a say? And that, I think that that's where it gets really muddy because all of these conflicting interests are coming into play. But at the same time, if you don't do it, you probably are starting this this slowdown trend of regional banks not providing the capital that the the, the country needs. Hmm. All right. So our second story here is that Flagstar Bank is the proud new owner of Signature Bank. Flagstar <laughs> Bank, you probably know them mostly from loan servicing. Uh, if you bought a a, a loan or a mortgage, I should say. That mortgage was probably sold to another servicer and Flagstar could have been that servicer. And so they bought Signature Bank and they got it at a discount of 12.7 billion. They purchased 12.9 billion in loans. I don't know, is that a 50% discount? But here's what's interesting. They left 60 billion outside of the deal. So this again is another sort of Hey, here's the bank we want to sell it or sell pieces of it. And they bought a very small chunk of it. I wonder if it was just the good mortgages or something like that. Cause Flagstar is a mortgage servicer. Um, uh, very, very interesting though, that only that much would sell. And it would appear that most of this bank was just left in the FDIC, which will then, you know, the FDIC will dispose of it 
in some other way. Yeah, sixty billion. But we we said the FDIC pool insurance pool was what one hundred twenty eight billion. Mm-hmm. Let's say let's say a large percentage, just fifty uh, percent of those loans are, I guess, insolvent. Right, and that's thirty billion dollar hole. It, potentially, I'm using some extreme numbers here, but yeah. again, how how long can the FDIC hold? assets that another bank doesn't want like who's going to buy it and how much are they going to sell it for yeah interesting well as more comes out we'll continue to update but uh just interesting news how these banks sold at significant discounts in pieces and then the question is what happens to the rest of the assets in the bank so yeah we'll uh we'll keep updated on that all right mortgages okay this is really interesting consumers think that mortgages in a recent poll, they think that the mortgage interest rate within the next 12 months will top 8.4%. And within the next three years, will top 8.8%. This is alarming to me, because that's 40% higher than they are right now. Uh, And of course, I hope that that is wrong. I hope they don't go that much higher. But how what's the scenario here? What would push mortgage rates up a lot higher and actually potentially touch eight to nine percent and and what would potentially make them stay flat or go down yeah uh mortgage rates are tied to the the u.s 10-year treasury right so the whatever the treasury is trading at plus a spread meaning if the treasury is trading at five percent and the spreads two percent you got seven percent mortgage rates which yes that that 8.4 percent figure might have made sense for mortgage rates if the U.S. 10-year Treasury stayed at five or six percent, and we're we're reporting this on April 5th, and the Treasury is trading at 3.3 percent, so using that math, mortgage rates are probably around six percent, which I think that's what we confirmed before it's about the show. Right. Yeah. So, so you would need an increase of spreads between the the mortgage rate and the U.S. Treasury, which would mean like a banking crisis for the spread to double like that. That would be a crisis. Mm. Um, or the baseline to go up, right? The 10-year, the which started the year at, well, nearly 5%, right? Mm-hmm. And now it's down to 3.5%. Who would predict that? The 10-year that was nearly 5%? It was like 4.7, 4. 4.8, something like that to start the year. And... One, the the Fed doesn't really control the longer longer end of the curve, but why the tenure is tagged to mortgages is, you know, uh, it's an amortizing asset, right? And you you have your thirty year mortgage. Each year that passes by, you're paying more and more of the principal, so that shrinks, right? And collectively, mm-hmm. as a pool, mortgages are prepaid, meaning. I'm going to sell my house, pay my old mortgage, and sign up for a new one. So that's why it's mm-hmm. typically typically tied to the tenure. But the prediction, again, the the I guess the same survey survey people, I don't know who they find for these surveys. <laughs> they they predicted rightly that um what mortgage rates were going to be last year and I think they predicted a a, a 5% Six percent in twenty twenty one, and they got it right for twenty twenty two. But I think 
I think that the tendency that people make, and I'm I'm using investors here too, is like they they think one trend will be that trend going forever, right? Right. Uh, right. Peloton with its growth rate, we're going to have twenty thirty percent growth rate over year over year. Not really accounting for that the COVID push or the COVID bump. Uh, Zoom, right? I, I can name essentially every tech company that saw a boost in demand, right? Even Amazon, one of the, one of the better run companies, that they kind of overestimate what's happening today and assume that's going to continue happening um, for the the time being. And I think that's what this this forecast is assuming that they hear the feds raising rates. Oh, mortgage rates are going to hit nearly 9% as a result. But there's, there's quite a few other factors at play here where mortgage rates are generally like a free market result, right? Like it, it takes bond buyers and there's a lot of bond buyers right now. And that's driving down the tenure. I feel like if I thought mortgage rates were going to go to eight or 9%, I would be a buyer right now. Like maybe that's the wrong yeah. way to look at oh, it. Oh yeah. yeah. But I feel like the real estate market would then be heating up in anticipation of higher rates. And if I you know could it afford is, it, right? You, yeah. Well, okay. That's fair. I guess if I was shopping for a house a year ago and with rates are now, I understand that the payment is so much higher that sometimes it's like, okay, I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm going to sit this one out. But if I thought it was going to continue to get worse, I feel like that would incentivize me to move forward. I don't know that yeah, we're seeing that in the exactly. data. Though. Yeah, I wrote a piece about expectations that we posted on Concilio Insights yeah. that that kind of spoke to this where expectations are harder to shake. And and I think the worst case scenario is if your expectations or your beliefs are so strong, you're going to take action today in anticipation of tomorrow, right? Where right. where cars are going to get more expensive or interest rates on cars are going to get some more expensive. So I'm going to do everything I can to buy a car now. Mm -hmm. And it, it kind of pulls forward like two or three years worth of demand because everyone is anticipating much higher rates. Oh, um, interesting. But in, in housing, it's weird because the, the supply isn't really there. Mm. So I don't, I can't, that's the problem with housing is like, if there's three or four buyers for every house, yes, we can measure that after the fact, but we're not seeing an outsized amount of bids relative to what we saw in 21, 22, because this year seems to have a pretty muted real estate market. But yeah, you're right. Okay. I think I think that would push people to, if they're seeing 6% rates now, wouldn't there be a flood of home buyers or potential home buyers or bidders. Yeah. And prices have come down a little bit as well. So it's, I'd be curious. We'll have to see if we can find some data on that to see if real estate activities up. I know inventories are up and things because homes are sitting longer, um, but prices are down. Interest rates obviously are up, but if the perception is they're going to go up, you know, another 40% or whatever. Yeah. I got to think, I got to think you're a buyer. The yeah, thing though, is I think about that. I'm really just making a case for perpetual demand, right? Like if yeah. I fear that interest rates go up, I'm going to buy. If interest rates are low, I'm going to buy. Uh, so that obviously isn't true, right? The economics behind that are, 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 they would prove otherwise. They would prove that buyer decisions are influenced by multiple things, not just as simple as the perception of what's going to happen in the future. No, and I think, but I think it's, 
has a lot to do with how we got here with inflation. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think it has a lot to do with the overhiring. Um, you know, when there's a worker shortage, what did companies do? Try to hire as many workers as they could, right? Mm-hmm. And not fire many workers. And again, I'm talking from last year, which seems like a decade ago, because all of a sudden we're in a different regime where companies are laying off workers. And yeah. it's so crazy how quickly that changes. But yeah, yeah, we talked about um, Costco saying, hey, limit two toilet paper in, in an effort to sell more than two toilet papers, right? Um, I think I think it boils down to relative scarcity or at least per- perceived scarcity where you think you think something in your head because, yeah, the these surveys, maybe they should pull um, another group of respondents because they're not getting the answer they need. But with these surveys, there's enough people that believe it. But yeah, in housing, we're just not seeing it. But maybe because it's such a big ticket item, banks are tightening lending standards, which makes which That's kind of is the other end of it, right? Yeah. So if you really want this house and you can't afford you know, inflated monthly payment, to be honest, right? Because 6% mortgage rates relative to the last two years is really, still really high. Mm-hmm. But looking out throughout history, 6% is pretty normal, believe it or not. So Yeah, it's you, actually reasonable, very reasonable. Yeah. But to your point, you need sale sales prices to come down. But I think that comes from inventory coming online because – Anyone who wants to sell their house isn't selling their house, and I think that's a, that's a problem too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Uh, for those that don't know, go to conciliawealth.com and click on Insights. At the top, you will find a host of articles that we produce on a regular basis. Uh, How writes a lot of these. Uh, you'll find his article that talks about this very topic. We have a whole bunch of other really uh, just interesting and top top of mind things here as well. You're probably on our email list. If you're not, you can subscribe right on our website and right on this this um, this site, the Insights site, and uh, then you'll get our regular emails as well. How? Let's shift over to markets. So we have some interesting data on uh, bull, bear, and in between markets, as well as consumer confidence data in the stock market, and then forward looking returns after those dates. All right. So yeah, you want to the bull, the bull, the bear, and in between. Yeah. And then yeah, I guess we'll start off that. Yeah. So this is interesting stuff here. So the the market in January of 2022. Let's call that the peak. And so, what's the forward-looking return to get back to that point? The reason why this is important is that if you zoom out far enough on the market. And let's say the market is the S and P 500 for, for a proxy. It always does get past the prior high might take a while, but it gets past the prior high and it rarely actually touches the prior low on a drawdown. Uh, We are nowhere near the, the COVID lows, for example. So on a forward looking basis from the end of the first quarter until, uh, so from the end of the first quarter to get back to the high, in January of 2022, if it gets there in a year, that's an 18 and a half percent rate of return, if which has get, happened before. It has happened before. returns. Yeah. Yeah. It has happened before. 
If it gets there in two years, that's a 9.8% annualized rate of return. Three years, it's a 7% annualized return, which is awesome, by the way. 7% is generally our assumption within financial plans. Four years, 5.7%, and five years, 5% annualized rate of return. Those are all great returns. And so we look at that and we say, when markets come down like this, we're constantly fascinated with, with our industry, at least I am, that when stocks come down, no one buys. Anything else goes on sale, car prices come down, jeans go on sale, restaurants are running, Seattle Restaurant Week, people go, because it's a deal. People don't buy stocks when they come down. But if we really could connect forward-looking returns to where markets are right now, I think people would be more apt to buy. So we're proponents of this, and we can bring confidence in this space because we know that as long as you're really well diversified, you'll do just fine over long periods of time. But we just wanted to point that out, that forward-looking returns to get from where we are today back to the peak in January of 2022 actually are really, really strong. Just takes Yeah, time. returns to break even, essentially, right? Like That's what we're yeah. saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that leads me to this next thing where um, there's a survey of uh, retirement savers that Schroeder's did and reported by Bloomberg. Um, working millennials, 33% cash. Workers That's 45 terrible. and older, 30% cash. So they are... N Again, this is probably different from Vanguard because Vanguard reports uh, very few of their investors actually shift their investments or made any trades during the bout yeah. of volatility. Yeah, that's interesting. So, again, it's who you pick for your survey pool, right? Or whoever's answering the phone for the survey. So, um, but I think this was about six. No, I. This was quite a few respondents. So this is again well past the um, the statistical like ignoring type of range. So quite a few people responded this way where the, they cited uh, the 30% cash, let's call it that for both workers, uh, they cited fear of market losses, which hmm. I think is wild, um, especially if you're a millennial. One, that, that tells me that you're trying to time the market. So what are you going to buy? I think Chris is saying is we'll buy when the news is bad, right? Because we have – we have data on market sentiment where if it's at its lows, the, the 12 months following, you know, once the sentiment bottoms out, 12 months following are the better returns on average mm -hmm. relative to the other side of it is if you start putting your money in when things are feeling good, you probably should mute your return expectations because when things are good, where do they go from there, right? Typically down. Mm -hmm. and when things are bad, where do they typically go? They tend to go back up, right? Because, and I think workers, especially workers, should see any kind of market draws as pants on sale, toilet paper on sale. You're you're buying and loading up. Two for one. Yeah. All right, millennials, and, invest your cash. Yeah. And workers forty five and older, the other the other category, invest your cash. Yeah, your time horizon's so far away. Yeah. Like, it, the last thing you want to do is say. Oh, I should have invested in 2023. That was a good buying opportunity. Yeah. Versus totally. actually doing it, right? Because you're buying an asset lower. So here's what's interesting. Consumer confidence. How, let me ask you this. 
without knowing what I'm about to say, because you know what I'm about to say, do you think, is your confidence in the stock market today higher or lower than it was in April of 2020, which was right after the sell-off oh. and COVID locked everything up? Okay. Uh, yeah, so I was managing quite a bit of money during that time, and my confidence was pretty shaken in April of 2020. Uh, I admittedly was one of those smart people, the smart money, right? Saying we're going to get a double dip. We didn't get one until November of that year. Mm -hmm. And if you sat out that period, you missed the the bottom, which to that November point, that was like a 46% return. Yeah. You missed 46% because you were driven by fear. Um, Again, scary time. I was driven. I'm talking to me, my, my 2020 uh, past self, right? Mm -hmm. And COVID was a scary time. We didn't know when the planet was going to reopen, let alone the U.S. And things, things in terms of like the real economy was pretty bad. You shut down the entire world, you know, economic activity stops. Little did we know that people, everyone was using Zoom. Everyone was on a Peloton bike. Everyone yeah. was still shopping at Costco, amazingly. Um, so, so it shows you how little connection the stock market has to the real world sometimes. And it shows you I how think, important it is to just follow the, the plan, frankly, yeah. rather than your gut. Because your gut was telling you, double dip, it's coming back down. It's not going to keep running up. But you followed the plan and you, you stayed invested, you kept clients invested, you executed on the otherwise well thought out strategy. Yeah. That's what's so important about that. Yeah. Every logical person can see that their streets were empty, stores were empty. No one was spending money. I remember, I remember looking out my window, we were living in downtown Seattle at the time and there's a building across from us that was under construction. And so every day, you know, the cars would come in from all the people working on the job site. And then every day they'd, they'd leave and then, and then there were none. Yeah. No cars, nothing, nothing downtown, no one yes. walking, no one in the building. I mean, it was just eerie. And I remember looking out the window going, you know, and then cruise ships, right? Cruise ship season didn't happen that year. Right? It just, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think the the term don't fight the fed was coined after the fact, no one was saying don't fight the fed in April, 2020. Right. Cause Yes, we got the cash injection from the Fed. We also had this uh, round one of stimulus under Trump. Right. But right. no one, no one really put two and two together. So I've I've taken the, um, the intelligent sources that that I use to this day. They all said double dip was coming. Mm -hmm. Right. Not unless we had a specific date that we were going to reopen, which we didn't have the vaccine yet, or. So, so any logical person like they would today using today's information that we have now, that's a, it's a bleak outlook, but 2020 was one of the best investing years ever. It, so it, the market's not even gotten close to it. Even, even the low, yeah. uh, last year, the market was still above the prior high of February yeah. 19th, 2020. So February 19th, 2020 was the market high. Then the low was March 23rd, 2020, fastest drawdown on record. And then the yeah. high of January 3rd, 2022, even the low, March 31, 
was above the high of February of 2020. Yeah, and looking at the consumer confidence chart in 2020, we actually have lower consumer confidence today than we did in 2020, which is confounding to me. So that is what's think... wild. Yeah. And so my question for our listeners is, how do you feel about markets today versus try to put yourself back in April of 2020 and ask yourself how you felt about markets in your 401k at that point? Yeah, I think you should be buying, 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 because the, your 2033 version of yourself would be so thankful that you took advantage of dip, right? Which is honestly, is pretty uncommon occurrence, right? Two thirds of the time, the market's up. Yeah, well, and, and, and I think the point we're trying to land here is that your, your April 5th, 2023 at 3.17 p.m., which is when we're recording this version of yourself, wishes that you bought more at the low of COVID. You well, probably had a 401k makes, drop makes in. Makes people brave, right? Yeah, exactly. The brave people yeah. that, that frankly responded to our, our email. We, we, if you're a client of ours, you, you probably got what we call a call for cash email, which is, hey, markets are down. We have no idea where the bottom is, but if you got money, we think you should drop it in because you're at X discount from the high. Yeah. And um, some client, we had one client that almost nailed the bottom. I mean, what a great, you know, that's that's no no credit to our calling the bottom. It's purely just us saying, hey, let's buy some. So I think it is alarming that consumer confidence is lower today than it is in April. And um, this, it's by the way, this- lower than it was sorry. in 2008. April of 2020. Yes, thank you. And yeah, in 2008, it's uh, eh, it's a tiny bit higher. Well, so not towards the end of, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, so we bounce off the bottoms, but I, again, we're trying to describe a chart verbally. <laughs> we're doing oh, a big up job of it right now. This survey, so this survey is literally a phone call to you. It's a random phone call. Yeah. You pick up. And uh, it's three questions, I believe. And they ask you, you know, how do you feel about the markets today? Good, bad? Uh, you know, are you going to invest in the future? Yes, no. There's three simple questions, and that's how they developed this consumer confidence survey. I hope to one day receive that phone call. I would love for whoever does this. This, it's I believe it's the University of Michigan that does it. But I would yeah. love uh, for the University of Michigan to call me. I would pick up that call. But I'm probably on some do not call list because of SEC registration or something like that. You know, they, they won't call a guy like me. <laughs> But here's yeah, we, the point. We, we totally skew the consumer confidence survey. Yeah, super bullish, right? No, not really. <laughs> okay, so the point in all this. Uh, subsequent 12-month returns for the S&P after the bottom of sentiment. So 25% average. Boom. 25% average up after eight troughs in this chart dating back to 1971. Uh, We're after talking. nine peaks, the positive yes. is three and a half percent. So yes, you might be not surprised to hear that. Yes, we also think when confidence is good, it's a good time to invest. Generally, that's good advice. But now with confidence being low, lower, lowest almost, um, it's a really good time. Yeah, and I think we've seen proof that no one knows, especially when the signals are screaming that you should not invest. Look at the SNL crisis of 87. We had a 30% crash in October of that year. You know what 87 ended after our 30% crash? Up 2%. There so you, you recovered 34% in two months. Not even a full two months, right? That was like that, that October was like a mid-October crash. 
Yeah. So I think what we're, what we're trying to prove is, or say, even to ourselves, right? Because we look at all the data, we, we know. Um, even when you have all the logical signs pointing one way, you just don't know. And you're more, more right, likely going to be wrong on the conservative side, and you're going to miss this run-up. Yep. Yep. All right. That's all the time we have for today's episode. If you have any questions, feel free to send them over to team at conciliowealth.com, and we will be sure to answer them on our next recording. Otherwise, if you liked this, send it to a friend, download it, subscribe to it, do all of the things that you're supposed to do there.